encourage you to turn in your copies of God's Word to Matthew chapter 13. We've been going through Matthew's Gospel in our evening worship at Cornerstone. It's been very, very rich getting a clearer sight of our Savior. And tonight I want to look with you at the first 23 verses of Matthew chapter 13 text that our church looked at last Sunday evening, and a very rich text. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky grounds where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no roots, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no roots in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruits and yields in one case a hundredfold, 
in another 60, and in another 30. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God lasts forever. Let's pray and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of it. Oh, Lord God, we say with the Apostle Paul that the one who plants and the one who waters, they are nothing. It is you who gives the growth. You are the great giver of the increase. You, Holy Spirit, the one who has inspired this very word. You who filled our Lord Jesus beyond measure as he preached these very words to the crowds. You, Lord, are the only one that can give us hearing and seeing hearts, hearts that receive the seed of your word, hearts that have good soil so that that seed sinks down deep and results in a great harvest of righteousness. And we pray for that tonight, Lord. We pray for a hundredfold fruitfulness upon the proclamation of your word as it reaches our ears. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Do not leave us to ourselves tonight. Help us to hear the voice of our Savior speaking here in the scriptures. Lord Jesus, we have come not to hear a mere man tonight. We have come to hear you, the God-man. And so speak, O Lord, and build up us, your people, in and through your word. We pray this all in your name. Amen. My wife, Tessa, has a neurological disease called neurofibromatosis type 2. It's a genetic disease, was passed down from her father to her. And through genetic testing, we have found that at least one of our boys has it as well. One of the, the protocols that the doctors give as a preventative means of catching uh, it before it results in complete and entire deafness is regular hearing tests. It serves as a graphic illustration, I think, of the Christian life. Given the disease of remaining sin, in our hearts, it is vital that we have regular hearing tests as Christians. Our sin has the potential to gradually dull our spiritual hearing until we find it hard to hear the voice of Christ at all. And the passage before us tonight is just that. It's a spiritual hearing test. It calls us to careful self-examination lest we go the way of deaf and blind Israel. It is just this deaf and blind Israel that Jesus has been encountering throughout chapters 11 and 12, particularly of Matthew's gospel. He has combated the unbelieving disdain of the Jewish religious leaders, of the Jewish crowds, of his own family his half-brothers, and that much opposition would likely lead you and I to call it quits, but not Jesus. As uh, he departs to the Sea of Galilee, the crowds follow him. And as we've seen, 
a cornerstone throughout our series in Matthew. The crowds, while they seem really fired up and excited about Jesus, uh, the majority of them are unbelieving. They're still in their sin. But Jesus, being followed by these crowds, he gets into a boat, pushes out from the shore, and what does he do? He continues to preach. He continues to do the work that his father gave him to do. And verse 3 tells us that he told them many things in parables. The word parable uh, comes from two words. The the prefix para, which means alongside of, and the the verb balo, which means to throw. It literally refers to something that is thrown alongside of something else. And when we're talking about a parable, we're talking about a short story that is thrown alongside of some kind of truth or teaching. Parables are short narratives that correspond to spiritual reality and call for spiritual response. They're short stories that correspond to spiritual reality and call for spiritual response. In the discourse of chapter 13, Jesus gives us eight parables. And the first is recorded in verses 3 through 8, presenting a scenario that would have been very familiar to Jesus' audience living in an agrarian society. It's a story of someone who is broadcast sowing. Uh, this, this is a farmer who is scattering seed by hand over acres and acres of land, throwing it out. It's the quickest and easiest way to sow seed. Uh, but it has a lower success rate than more tedious and precise ways of planting. And so some of the seed falls along the path and is eaten by the birds. Other of the seed falls upon Soil that has a sheetrock just underneath it so that uh, the, the seed, though it tries to sink down, is unable to actually get roots of any depth. And still other seed falls on soil that is weed-ridden so that it is deprived of its necessary nutrients, literally choked out. But despite all of that, broadcast sowing is still a worthy endeavor because much of the seed, or at least some of the seed, does find good soil, leading to a harvest of varying degrees. Having shared that short and engaging narrative, Jesus then declares in verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. That's a bit strange if you think about it, especially in the context Jesus has been healing everybody. We actually just saw him heal a deaf man. So there's no question about it. Everybody on the shores has physical ears to hear. So what is Jesus talking about? He's saying, if you have ears that are hearing this parable, make sure that you are really actually hearing There's a a great difference between being entertained by an engaging story and actually being transformed by that story as you grapple with its significance in application to yourself. The sound waves produced by Christ's vocal cords, they're, they're reaching the auditory nerves 
of his hearers. And those auditory nerves are then sending an electrical signal to the brain. They are hearing, but similar to the way that a, a chain smoker might sit in his doctor's office and nod along as his doctor is telling him about the direct correlation between smoking and cancer and warning him of these things. He nods along and then he leaves the doctor's office and buys three packs of cigarettes. That's essentially what the crowds are doing. They're nodding along to Jesus, but they're not really hearing. A parable without interpretation doesn't help matters any. Because it's unclear to the crowd what Jesus is actually referring to here. And that's why in verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And his response reveals that Christ's parables have two contrary purposes. That's our first point tonight. Christ's parables have two contrary purposes. Jesus begins to answer his disciples' question in verse 11. He says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That word for secrets here is the plural of the Greek mysterion. You maybe hear in that, that Greek word the, the English word mystery. That's actually one way that it could be translated, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And this got us really excited at Cornerstone last week because in our morning sermon series, we've been working our way through Daniel. And in Daniel, throughout, particularly in Daniel chapter 2, the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom are a key theme. In fact, it's almost certainly the case that Jesus is here alluding to Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel and his friends, verse 18 of Daniel 2, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. It's a mystery that was revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's a mystery of what? Well, it's a mystery of the kingdom of heaven breaking into this earth, ultimately decimating the kingdom of man and overtaking the globe. Now, as our congregation has been seeing in the book of Daniel, well, one of the keys to understand the prophets when they foretell the coming of Christ is to understand that they understood the coming of Christ to be one single cataclysmic event. It's oftentimes uh, described as a, as a mountain range that you know, you're, you're driving to the mountains on vacation and there's this massive mountain in front of you. And as you're far off, it looks like it's just one mountain. But then as you begin to drive through that mountain, you recognize behind it is a second mountain. And that's, that's a very important uh, key to understanding Old Covenant prophecy. That's the, the Old Covenant saints looking ahead to the coming of Christ. They saw it as one mountain, as one coming. But us who have driven through that first mountain understand there's a second mountain behind it. And that some of the things foretold in the coming of the Messiah will not be realized until the second coming 
of Christ. Now, that's important for us to understand here because the Jews did not understand that. And the crowds here, the religious leaders, they did not understand that. They believed that the Messianic king was going to come with an earth-shattering bang and that he was going to slay the Roman beast and that he was going to bring political liberation to Israel and peace to the ends of the earth. Bam! Done. And in their misguided expectations, they actually failed to understand that the kingdom was unfolding right before their eyes in a most unexpected and ironic way. It was unfolding quietly, imperceptibly almost, at Christ's first coming, though it would not be consummated until Christ's second coming. And according to Jesus, the reason why they missed this is because God did not intend to share this secret or this mystery with them. We know how this works. It's a great, great honor to have someone share their innermost secrets with you. If you've ever experienced that, you, you feel honored, you feel loved, you feel important. We only share secrets with those who have gained our trust, with those we love. And the secrets of the heavenly kingdom are reserved for Christ's sincere disciples who hear his voice and who follow him. To them, Christ says in verse 12, more will be given as Christ unveils the counterintuitive nature of his heavenly rule. But to the spiritually deaf crowds, even the little understanding that they have will be, verse 12, taken away. And this is why our Lord throws parables alongside of the coming of his kingdom. It's because... One of the purposes of his parables is to conceal, to conceal his kingdom words. Look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. For those who are spiritually blind and deaf, parables shroud the mystery of the kingdom in even greater mystery. Christ speaks of this in his prayer to his father back in chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. You've hidden them from the wise and understanding. From those who are wise, for those who are wise in their own eyes and thus respond to God's wisdom in Christ with unbelieving disdain, God sovereignly hides the truth of his kingdom. And one of the ways he does that is by way of parables so that hearing they don't actually hear. That's an allusion to Isaiah 6, which is what Jesus goes on to quote at length in verses 14 and 15. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. 
We saw it earlier in our worship service that Isaiah was lifted up into the very throne room of heaven. He beheld the thrice holy king. The one John tells us in John chapter 12 is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ himself. He's beholding the one, the one that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man to whom was given an eternal kingdom. And seeing this holy king, he is exposed in his unholiness. And no sooner is he exposed, is he then cleansed. Gospel grace. And no sooner is he cleansed than he is commissioned, sent out as an ambassador of the king of heaven to herald the word. But as he goes, the king tells him, look, Israel's not going to listen. They're not going to hear. And now, fast forward centuries now in our text we don't have an ambassador of the king of heaven we have the king of heaven himself he has come in human flesh and the jews are still not hearing they are deaf to his words and in response to their evil hearts christ actually keeps his secrets from them by speaking in parables, just as God kept the secrets of the heavenly kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar and his worldly wise men by speaking through apocalyptic imagery. But that is not so for Christ's true disciples, because there's a second purpose in giving parables. They not only conceal Christ's kingdom word, they also second clarify his kingdom words. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. The disciples are hearing the exact same parable that the crowds are. The difference is that they have receptive hearts. And as Christ's prayer makes clear back in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, this is the result of the sovereign, gracious working of God who delights in revealing these things to little children, to those who are not wise in their own eyes, to those who are not arrogant and haughty, to those who are humble. Christ chose to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to these men, giving them hearing hearts to such if that be you and i here tonight christ's parables actually illustrate his truth and serve to drive it deeper into our souls it's often said that a picture is worth a thousand words and we could also say that a picture is worth a thousand emotions Good illustrations are extremely powerful and they engage us on a number of different levels, not just intellectually, but also uh, emotionally. They, they engage our, our affections and they, they help us to remember truths. It's probably the case that you don't remember most of the sermons that you've heard most of the, the just straight up propositional truths and points that are made in a message. But if there's a good illustration, you will remember it for years and years and years. And if it's an illustration used rightly in a sermon, 
it will often be tied, it should be tied in your mind to a truth. So that as you think upon it, you're actually being led back to the truth of God. By parable, Christ is seeking to drive his truth deep into the minds and hearts of his believing followers so that they would understand the nature of his kingdom and live in light of it. So there are two contrary purposes to parables. They conceal God's kingdom word from the proud and they clarify God's kingdom word to the humble. And that means that as the word is being spoken and as this parable is being spoken, there are two radically different responses among the hearers, which is actually what the parable of the sower is all about. There's only two times in the Gospels that Christ interprets his parables for us. Most of the time we're left to ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course to figure out what the meaning of these short narratives are. But in light of the believing inquiry of his disciples who are desirous to understand, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable of the sower. And as he does, he makes plain that Christ's hearers have two contrary responses. Second point, Christ's parables have two contrary purposes. Second, Christ's hearers have two contrary responses. Throughout the early and medieval church, it was common for Christ's parables to be interpreted allegorically. And this simply meant that you found spiritual significance in every little nook and cranny of the story. Every detail had some spiritual correlation. Martin Luther, in a way that only Luther could, he uh, poked fun at those who interpreted the parables in this way, calling them clerical jugglers performing monkey tricks. Now, as we think about our interpretation of Scripture, hopefully uh, it's clear to us that we don't want our understanding of Scripture to be worthy of a circus. And that concern has led many in the history of interpretation to swing to the other extreme, saying that each parable has only one spiritual correlation and that all the other details of the parable are spiritually insignificant. They're just there for the sake of the story. We need to think about this clearly. How, how are we to understand these things? If Christ's parable, or rather his interpretation of this parable, serves as an example to us of how we are to interpret all of his parables, which I would argue that it does, then it would lead us to avoid both of these extremes. Okay, did you get that? If, if Christ's interpretation of this parable is an example to us of how we should read all of his parables, then we shouldn't see every little detail as having spiritual significance. But we also need to avoid the extreme of saying there's only one thing in the parable that has any spiritual significance. Jesus 
tells us in verse 19 that the seed being sown is the word of the kingdom. This word, which elsewhere in Matthew is called the gospel of the kingdom, it has been proclaimed throughout all of Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus is the ultimate sower. And as we saw back in in chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to sow as his kingdom ambassadors. They would also spread the seed of the kingdom word in the expectation of harvest. But as that word goes forth, what Jesus tells us in this parable is that many of his hearers deny his kingdom words. Many deny it. He begins by interpreting the seed that was sown along the path and then devoured by the birds. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. These are people like the Pharisees, people who are hearing Christ's teaching, but the truth remains completely hidden to them. There is no understanding. No sooner does the word reach their ears than it is snatched away by the devil. He devours it. And it's a good reminder for us, friends. We need to be reminded of these things quite regularly that anytime the word of God is being spoken or read or preached, there is a spiritual battle waging. That, that we have an enemy who is doing everything in his power from keeping this word to sink down in our hearts and to sink down into the hearts of those we are sharing it with. He is working tirelessly to devour it before it reaches you, to keep you from understanding, to keep you from remembering. He wants nothing more than you to leave this place tonight and to have no clue what this sermon was about, to not be able to remember anything you heard and to not profit from it. So that's the seed sown on the path. And then Jesus moves to the the seed sown on the rocky soil, which he interprets in verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now we're moving to one who receives the gospel and does so with joy. There, there is a, an understanding of the person and work of Christ. And, and there's a gratitude in the heart for what Christ has done. But it's all superficial. It's all surface level. The word never actually takes root. And the moment that that word entails a cross... These so-called disciples are gone. They're nowhere to be found. It's easy to stand up on your wedding day and before God and, and before a group of people to say to your bride, till death do us part. But the moment marriage entails painful sacrifice, that is when your commitment is really tested. 
That's when it's really proven day after day after day of painful sacrifice, whether you really meant it when you said until death do us part, I'm not going anywhere. And so, too, with Christ's people, persecution is a mercy to the church. It is so for many reasons, but one of the reasons is it purifies the church. It exposes empty professors, those who name the name of Christ, but only in words. Their, their hearts aren't actually reverencing him and loving him. And one has to wonder in a free country like ours, how many professing Christians have a profession that is empty? How many people have gathered in churches today who are no different than the crowds. They are excited about Jesus and what Jesus can do for them. He can heal our bodies. He can give us bread. He's an exciting, engaging teacher. This is great. But the moment it's no longer popular to follow Jesus, the moment he's got a cross on his back and he's heading to Golgotha, guess where the crowds will be? There'll be nowhere to be found. Gone. And then we have the seed scattered on the thorny soil. Verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. This again is someone who appears to receive the word. The seed goes in, it finds soil. It sprouts, but it never bears fruit because it is choked out by greed, starved by worldliness. And it seems here that Jesus is intentionally addressing one of his own 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, who has left everything to follow him, but in no time at all is going to be selling Jesus for a few silver coins. Just think about that. The insanity of that. Selling Christ for a bag of silver. And yet Jesus is saying, look, people are going to do this all the time. They're going to name my name. And then they're going to go out in the world. And they're going to pursue after riches and stuff. And they're going to make that the chief end of their existence. And it's going to choke out the word. So that it doesn't bear any fruits. Worldliness is a great foe to the kingdom of heaven. You can be convicted by the preached word. You can resolve to turn from your sin to Jesus. But within little time at all, that resolve can come to nothing. As worldly lusts choke it out. And it's a very subtle thing, friends. The weeds oftentimes grow slowly, even imperceptibly. They just slowly sap the nutrients, the life from the soil until suddenly there's no nutrients left. It's a very scary thing. And so here we have three soils, all varied pictures of hearers who have not actually heard. 
They might appear to hear for a time. They might appear to be excited about Jesus for a time. They might even get up in front of the church and make public profession of faith. But through persecutions, through prosperity, through some other tactic of the devil, they never really receive Christ's kingdom word in true saving faith. And this I would propose to you is the main point of the parable. Jesus is seeking to explain how it is that the king of heaven could come and be met by such stubborn and pervasive unbelief and opposition. This is not what anyone was expecting. How could this be? It's a warning to us. Lest the word be sown into our hearts graciously by God. But through demonic unbelief, we run in the path of the Pharisees or the crowds or Judas Iscariot himself. It's a warning. But it's also, I think, meant to be an encouragement for disciples of Christ, for for those who are sincerely following him and, and those who have seized upon the call to be his kingdom ambassadors, that as we take the word the word of the kingdom into our homes, parents, grandparents. We're we're taking the word into our homes. We're taking the word into our workplaces. We're taking the word into our schools. We're taking the word into our communities. We're taking the word here and into our church, teaching Sunday school and and by, by so many different means, seeking to build one another up in our faith. And and what this parable teaches us is that faithful sowing doesn't always result in fruitful harvest. It didn't for Jesus, the preacher of preachers. Okay, we often call Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers. He's not. Jesus was. And he is. And yet, even Jesus' sowing was oftentimes not met with a harvest. And so this is an encouragement to us because as we sow and we meet opposition, we shouldn't lose heart. Nor should we stop sowing. For while many respond negatively or emptily to the gospel, some do respond in saving faith, which is where Jesus's parable ends. The second main purpose, the second main response of his hearers They discern his kingdom words. Some deny, others discern. Verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. This is the hearing of sincere disciples. Those who don't just hear the word, but those who do the word. The word takes root in their hearts. Uh, those roots sink deep down and they burst forth into a harvest of righteousness. And you, you see that that harvest is of varying degrees. Some are more fruitful and some are less fruitful, but all bear fruits as they discern the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, as they submit to the king 
of heaven and as he subdues them to himself and his law. Sincere disciples, they hear the same word as hypocritical disciples. They hear the same word as the indifference and the indignance do. But through the Spirit's gracious work, the soil of their hearts is good so that the word is planted and bears much fruit. Are you beginning to understand why it is that Jesus asks the question that he does in verse 9? He who has ears, let him hear. Not a question, actually. I'm asking you a question. <laughs> you beginning to understand why Jesus says that? He who has ears, let him hear. There's arguably nothing that's more important than, than having ears. I mean, really having ears to hear Christ's kingdom words. And so tonight, let me ask you, how's your hearing? What does the fruit in your life say about your hearing? Is God's word prevailing upon your soul so that you are growing in faith and in holiness? Now, when I ask a question like that, I often just pastorally, have, I need to make the comment. I'm not talking about looking back over the past week, okay? When we look at short spans of our lives, it's often hard to see growth. I'm talking, if you look back over the past five years, is the word of God bearing fruit in your life? So that you're growing in faith, you're growing in holiness, you are more confident in the grace of Jesus Christ today than you were five years ago. And you're more like Jesus today than you were five years ago. Is this word living and active to you? Does it cut you? Does it bind you up? Is it subduing you more to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Is it producing in your heart an ever-expanding knowledge of God, an ever-expanding knowledge of your own sin, an ever-expanding knowledge of the sweet gospel grace of Jesus? Is that happening? Last Saturday, as I was preparing to preach this at Cornerstone, I was seeking to get the word in my own heart and God cut me deep with this word. And he began to just show me in many ways how dull my hearing was, my spiritual hearing. I just began to kind of take an inventory of, of my life and, and looking at private worship and my, my reading of, of the scriptures there and, and how often in private worship I would approach this book with a sleepy, half-hearted attention. Not always, but often. Especially as of late. I've been in Leviticus and Numbers in my reading. So I like to use that as my excuse, but it's no excuse, friends. This is the word of God. When we open this book and read it, God is speaking to us. Just seeing a sleepy, half-hearted engagement. And then, and then I move to, to family worship. And here I am doing my duty as a dad. We're, we're going to open the Bible. We're going to read it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to pray together. And, 
And just coming to see that in family worship, there is this, this rushed, half-hearted engagement with the scriptures. Sleepy, half-hearted engagement in my private worship. Rushed, half-hearted engagement. Not coming to the word as the word. Coming to the word as something we just got to check off so we can get on to other things and feel good about ourselves. You know, I'm a good dad teaching my kids the Bible. Pretty great, huh? No, not. I'm not really reckoning and, and not really seeking for this word to prevail upon my own heart. And then coming to, to public worship and, and thinking about how, how I can sometimes, not, not always, sometimes engage with this book in an impersonal, half-hearted manner. Focusing on what you need to hear and failing to recognize that God's actually speaking to this man right here. It's not just preachers that struggle with that. I assume if you're anything like me when I'm out there, that uh, you often do this too, thinking to yourself in the middle of the sermon, wow, so-and-so needs to hear that. Man, I wish so-and-so was here. Or maybe you're nudging your husband or, or your son, like, listen up, man, preachers speaking to you. No, preachers speaking to you. And not human preacher, divine preacher, Christ. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. And so let me ask you again, how, how is your hearing? I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm, I'm talking about you. How is your hearing? You see, after roughly 20 years of being a Christian, 20 years of having the Spirit's sanctifying influence in my own heart, I'm convinced I'm still quite a lousy hearer, quite a lousy hearer. And worldliness, the love of comfort, the fear of man, and, and so many other sinful heart dispositions can keep me from really hearing this word. I nod along, but internally I am given over to self-justification. Why this doesn't apply to me, or at least it doesn't apply to me right now in this particular circumstance, maybe later on down the road. And if I don't mortify that unbelieving arrogance, do you know what will happen to my spiritual ears? They will increasingly dull until Christ's booming voice is like a faint whisper. Okay, Christ has a booming voice. Psalm 29 says his voice shakes the cedars of Lebanon. We are talking massive trees and they tremble at his voice. I have some people in my congregation that have hearing problems and and they, they sometimes say, Nick, I never have trouble hearing you when you preach. But sometimes when we have guest preachers, it's very hard to make out just about anything of what they are saying. Now, consider that for a moment. Just, just imagine that that is true of you at all times. That you open this book to read it. You hear it read or taught or preached by others. 
and and you just can, you're like making out one word here and one word there, trying to put pieces together, but it's just like a, a whisper. And, and you can't quite get what is being said. That's, that's a terrifying thing. It's fine to put up with one sermon like that, but to go your whole life like that, a terrifying thing, which is why it's a mercy for Christ to serve us up a hearing test here. My friends, how you and I treat this word is how we treat Christ. If we reject this word, we reject him. If we treat this word with a sleepy indifference, we treat him with a sleepy indifference. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Open your hearts. Open your hearts to, to hear. Open your hearts to receive. Open your hearts to respond and, and get low before him, the, the king of heaven and earth. For the kingdom of heaven, it comes to such hearing hearts. And that kingdom is the sum and substance of the single word found in verse 16 of our text. Blessed. Blessed. Let's pray.